Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Good morning, everyone, and welcome, and thank you for joining. So in this morning's uh, series, we're going to talk about protected urea, uh, which is an option for us in the nitrogen space. So if we think of this as a signpost series, we can see that um, the signs are pointing towards that need for low emission agriculture in the future. Um, but also Irish farm families need to be able to, to sustain their production and sustain their businesses. And nitrogen is an important component in that. Um, at Johnston Castle, uh, the team here, including um, David and I, have been working on a pipeline of solutions uh, to allow us to address challenges that we know are coming um, to allow us to maintain that production while meeting the environmental challenges. So in the nitrogen space, uh, protected urea is just part of the story. Um, of course, there are several ways that plants can get nitrogen, and it's a key component in plant growth at a physiological level. And this is not something that's going to change. So nitrogen drives production of chlorophyll. Chlorophyll is, if you like, in layman's language, the solar panel for the plant. And if the plant doesn't have enough solar panel, it's not going to be able to um, reach uh, its production potential. So getting nitrogen into the system is important. Um, and the sources of nitrogen, um, the source that that nitrogen comes from, uh, the plant doesn't mind too much. And so we have biological fixation through legumes, such as clover, for instance, nitrogen recycling uh, through manure um, in mineral and in organic forms. And of course, there's fertilizers of which um, protected urea is part of the story. And also there's atmospheric deposition, which we don't really have control over. So in terms of the science, where are the signs pointing over the next decade um, for nutrients, including nitrogen fertilizer? So just Fresh off the presses, we have um, the European Commission coming out with the farm to fork strategy at the heart of this European uh, Green Deal. And we know that this is going to set essentially the narrative uh, for us over the next decade. And in that document, the Commission state their intention to act to reduce nutrient losses by at least 50%. So I suppose for us, we need to think about that and how, how are we going to, what would that mean for us and what sort of solutions might we have to bring to the table uh, while maintaining our production. Um, and they also signal a reduction in fertilizer use by at least 20% by 2030. And that's only a decade away. And if you think for, for um, perspective's sake, that uh, here at Johnstone Castle, it's almost a decade ago since we began uh, looking at protected urea and developing that as an option. Uh, why has the Commission set out this goal? Well, they mention air, soil, water pollution, as well as climate impacts and biodiversity impacts. So on the nitrogen side, you know, there's a definite benefit in terms of production, but we also know that it's, uh, it's leaky and we need to try and um, hang on to it and use it as best we can. And every small bit makes a difference. So why protected urea now? Well, at a national level, we already have commitments there to reduce uh, greenhouse gas and ammonia emissions. And as a country producing uh, some of the finest food products um, internationally, we're reliant on exporting uh, that product. And our green image is an important component of winning those markets. And if we look at the options in terms of 
meeting those reduction targets, uh, protected urea is the largest single tool on the table. From a farmer perspective, we do know that it grows top yields. We know this because we've measured it over many years and have published that work. And I'll show you a little bit more of that later. We know that in terms of cost, it costs less than calcium ammonium nitrate. So it's ticking that box. We know that it reduces emissions of the greenhouse gas at nitrous oxide. And we know this because we've taken tens of thousands of measurements to establish this. And we've also published that work. The same story on ammonia front. Again, we've measured that loss from the different fertilizers. We know that it holds on to nitrogen to grow grass, and we've published it. And the results, as a result of all this, importantly, at a national level, we can get credit for reduced emissions. So what is protected urea? So another, some of you here may be using it, and others um, may be less familiar. So simply, it's urea fertilizer, which has been made safe from ammonia gas loss using something called a urease inhibitor. And that urease inhibitor can be applied to the, to the surface of the urea granule or incorporated in the melt. So standard urea, which has been used in Ireland for decades, has a weakness. So when it's applied, it changes over through this process of hydrolysis to ammonium. Ammonium is half of what's in a bag of can. Once in the ammonium form, the nitrogen is relatively safe. However, this hydrolysis process is catalyzed by a soil enzyme called urease. And this rapid change over causes loss of a gas known as ammonia. That's a nitrogen gas for which we've committed to make reductions nationally. So how does a urease inhibitor work? Urease and en enzyme produced by soil bacteria the inhibitor goes in and it blocks the active site of the enzyme. And this is distinctly different from interfering uh, with the microbe that's actually producing the enzyme. So it's just blocking the enzyme. And in so doing, this process whereby urea changes over to ammonium happens with minimal loss. So urease inhibitor options. There are three urease inhibitors that are registered under the EU fertilizer regulations. Those are NBPT, available from uh, Coke Agronomic Services and others. There's NBPT plus NPPT, a newer product um, available from BASF. And there's 2NPT, and this is produced by SKW Fertilizers in Germany. All three of these are on the Irish market now. And for a farmer wondering, how can I be sure that the amount that's set out in the regulations is there in my product when I buy it. You can have confidence in the Department of Agriculture who are responsible for regulation will be carrying out market surveillance to ensure that the regulatory levels are met at the point of sale. So you might be wondering, how am I going to actually use this and what should I use? Well, at Chagas, we have put a list on the soil fertility website of options available here in Ireland. And we'll keep this uh, list up to date. So you can check in on that website uh, to see the list as it, as it is updated, with, as new products become available. And there are 18 options from six fertilizers on the list. So there's lots to choose from. Primarily, these are nitrogen or nitrogen plus sulfur products. 
And this is really where you should be thinking about protected urea um, in your fertilizer program. But more on that from David later. Sulfur is important. Um, in my research program here at Johnstone Castle, I have ongoing work in the sulfur area, and we are seeing that sulfur does make a, different, a big difference, uh, particularly on the lighter soils. So not all soils are, are the same, but certainly if you've got lighter soils, you should be considering sulfur. And additionally, going into second coat silage applications, you should also be thinking about sulfur uh, for your soils. And in the protected urea space, there are options, six options um, available here with sulfur. So the research, how do we, how do we know the things that we, we know? I mentioned that we had conducted the research. If we look at the ammonia side, using this system of wind tunnels here, we're moving the cursor over, and we measure the different fertilizers loss. And what we can see here in this graph to the right of your screen is that comparing to urea, both protected urea and calcium ammonium nitrate have relatively low ammonia nitrogen loss. And this is good because we have a commitment to reduce that gas. We also have a commitment to reduce greenhouse gases. And here we can see that both urea and protected urea have much lower losses of the greenhouse gas nitrous oxide in comparison uh, to calcium ammonium nitrate. So simply put, protected urea is ticking both boxes, which we need to take ammonia and nitrous oxide, which is a greenhouse gas. From a pr production perspective, we also need fertilizer options to stand up in the field. And we know this graph here uh, to the right of your screen um, shows the dry matter production and it summarizes the results from 30 separate applications in all sorts of different growing conditions over two years at three sites. And here we can see that protected urea is matching calcium ammonium nitrate yield. From an end recovery or efficiency perspective, we see again that protected urea is matching calcium ammonium nitrate in terms of nitrogen recovery. Whereas urea, marked here in the blue, has somewhat lower recovery. And this is as a result of loss of nitrogen through the ammonia loss pathway for that, let's say, standard or not protected, um, the standard urea. So over the last number of weeks, there's been a lot of questions coming in in relation to protection of the use of protected urea if you've got dry conditions, um, and will it, will it really protect the urea um, if the weather conditions are dry? Well, this is what the protection is, is actually for. So it's, if you don't um, get rainfall immediately after rain, afterwards to suppress loss, will the protection actually do its job? That's what, you're, that's what you're paying for, essentially. And I can show you some data here from measurements that we, we took in those wind tunnels. This was for a June 9th fertilizer application with minimal rainfall during the period of measurement. And across the bottom here, um, the, the red and the, the blue lines that you see here are for calcium ammonium nitrate and protected urea, both having low loss during this period. In contrast, you see standard urea having much elevated ammonia loss. And this is because it doesn't have a urease inhibitor included. So yes, the protection is there. This is what the products are designed to do. It's a separate question 
as to what sort of response you're going to get to the nitrogen that you apply. And that goes for all fertilizers. So thankfully we've gotten some rain and now, um, including here in the southeast, um, and this will go some way to reducing soil moisture deficits. And um, however, when you add nitrogen and soil moisture deficits are high and climbing, and we're starting to enter drought conditions, you have to remember that nitrogen is not a substitute for water. So remember back to 2018, where you saw, where you already would have seen that. Um, and if you go out and apply nitrogen, where water is the limiting factor, or indeed where it's too cold and growth rates are suppressed for that reason, you will potentially see disappointing responses immediately until growth conditions um, improve, and then that nitrogen will kick in. So the thing to be careful with there is if you've already loaded up on nitrogen, growth kicks in, and you go back and load more nitrogen on top of that, um, it's, um, let's say, not necessary, and not, not potentially necessary. Um, and what we see consistently, I have a long-term uh, trial site here at Johnstown Castle with the different fertilizers side by side. And where growth conditions go back, it gets too dry or it gets too cold. One fertilizer goes back, they all go back um, in terms of yield. And when one increases, they all increases, in increase uh, when conditions improve. So just quickly in terms of cost, if we look to um, the cost side of things, how might you uh, compare two different fertilizers? So Chagas doesn't sell fertilizer and these costs are moving around continually. This is simply just to show you how you would go about the calculation. So for a 46% nitrogen product, just add a zero onto the end, you'll have 460 kilograms of nitrogen in a ton of product. And if you divide that into the cost, you'll have a cost per kilogram. Likewise, 27% product, add a zero on the end, you have 270 kilograms nitrogen per ton. Divide that into the cost per ton and you can compare directly on cost per kilogram. In terms of um, work rate and so on, um, here at Johnstone Castle where we've been using protected urea on the farm for at least five years, we see um, a work rate benefit in that if you think about a big bag of protected urea, 46% product, um, it's going to weigh less than a bag of can but it still has more nitrogen in it because it's more dense. Um, and as a result, with less weight in the spreader, but the same volume, we can get across a greater area, 14 um, acres versus 11 acres in this particular example. So I'm just drawing to a close here. And um, before we go on to David, who's going to show you how you might incorporate um, this into a potential um, program. Um, but one thing is clear, uh, this is an option for us in terms of reducing greenhouse gas and ammonia um, from agriculture uh, while sustaining production. Um, however, uh, while that option is there on the menu, it will require substantial change in fertilizer selection if those, let's say, abatement um, are going to be availed of. If we look at the 2019 uh, fertilizer uh, figures breakdown, we can see here that about half of the pie is in straight nitrogen. Protected urea here, um, in the orange, a relatively small portion of that nitrogen. Um, and this is, far, Irish farmers are spend, spent last year in the region of 160 million euro um, on um, that nitrogen, which is an eye-watering amount. And um, so any sort of change in this market um, is going to bring its own challenges, let's say. Um, that level of a spend um, at 10,000 an acre would 
uh, buy you a nice uh, 36,000 acre farm. So this is a tremendous amount of money that we're talking about here. Um, and, uh, you know, if there's going to be changes here, um, obviously that mightn't be uh, so straightforward. Um, but th it's there as, as a menu option and one that we are providing you the information uh, to incorporate it onto your farm. And we'll turn over to David now, who's going to take you through an example of how you might do that. Okay, thank you, Patrick. So I'll just share my screen with you. Can everybody see that? Yep, that looks good, David, thanks. Okay, so um, uh, very briefly, I, I want to discuss on how we would uh, incorporate protected urea into uh, a standard fertilizer program and, and where um, are the, the timings uh, and the rates that, that it may uh, fit at. So the first thing that I, I would like to say is in terms of nutrient advice, we see here a number of different soil profiles and uh, the key here, I suppose, is that um, uh, one soil does not fit all in terms of nutrient advice. Um, this is particularly true for, for nitrogen advice where um, you know, loss pathways for nitrogen are, are going to be very different in different soil types. The more free drain in the soil, uh, the more potential there is for nitrogen leaching at certain times of the year, especially early in the year and late in the season. And also in terms of poorly drained soils, uh, there's no more potential for nitrogen loss through greenhouse gas uh, emissions when soils are wet or saturated and we put nitrogen on them. So this is something to think about. Also in terms of the other nutrients, uh, phosphorus, potassium, uh, sulfur, etc. Um, the interaction of those nutrients uh, with different soils, um, the outcomes are going to be very different depending on the soil type. So again, it's always prudent to uh, develop a fertilizer plan in conjunction uh, with, your, with your advisor. Um, and that will help you optimize the nutrients um, that you're applying on your farm. So if we think about um, a typical grass nitrogen uptake um, and, and requirements by, by a grass sward, I've picked a relatively dry um, uh, site here where we have data and the red line shows the background soil end release rates uh, over the year. Uh, these are coming from mineralization of nitrogen and soil organic matter. And you can see there, uh, as we go through the spring into um, early summer, uh, those soil mineralization rates are increasing. At the same time, if we look at the green line, uh, that shows the, the typical nitrogen demand or uptake uh, over the season. And you can see there, it rapidly increases once soils warm up uh, in um, early to mid-March. And uh, the difference being here, being the nitrogen fertilizer requirements. So basically what we're trying to do here with our nitrogen fertilizer is fill the gap, uh, allow the grass to reach its potential. Um, at peak growth there, um, roughly this time of the year, um, if, if conditions are, are, are conducive, we have enough moisture, enough heat, and enough nutrients, uh, the nitrogen uptake demand there is a little over two kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per day, uh, up to about two and a half on uh, heavier soils, which have a big 
mid-season peak. So again, we're trying to specify rates of nitrogen in splits uh, over the season that uh, fulfill this demand without applying too much uh, because there's potential for loss and without applying too little, uh, which is going to uh, help us uh, or, or reduce our, our, our overall output. So if we think about this in terms of a fertilizer program over the season, so um, for, for nitrogen uh, and phosphorus in particular, the season finishes on the 15th of September. So that's our last spreading date. And the season opens at different uh, points in, in, uh, in different regions of the, of, the, of the country. But from about mid-January uh, here in the southeast and uh, up in the northeast, uh, northwest, should I say, um, around the 1st of February. So um, we need to think about the grass growth demand. We need to think about the soils that we're on. This is a well-drained uh, soil. Uh, the green line shows the grass growth. Uh, kilograms per hectare per day and you can see there um, it begins to to start growing from about mid-February and reaches peak growth around this time of the year. If we think about then the fertilizer program that goes into that we can break that fertilizer program into four periods. So the spring period where we have low demand, the early summer period where we have uh, high demand and high stocking rates because a proportion of the ground is closed for silage then we get on and, and that, that first cut silage ground is available for grazing on most of the dairy farms at least um, in period three. And then we're trying to see out the year and build grass covers in the autumn uh, in period four. The first thing that I must say here is it's essential to increase and uh, have high uh, levels of nitrogen use efficiency. It's really important to have your pH optimized. So liming applications on these dry soils um, uh, will need to be opportunistic. Where there's a, a, an opportunity to spread some lime, and no matter what point it is in the year, these dry soils are very conducive for that, for trafficability, for traveling with the lime spreader. For the first period then, um, if it's uh, early ground, well-drained soils, um, there's two things to consider. We need to in, in, uh, input um, P and K in particular at some point in that period. So if it's the first round and you've gone out with, on a proportion of the farm with slurry, then uh, you can hold back and spread something like a protected urea in the second round. However, if it's uh, protected urea being spread or traditionally urea being spread in the first round, uh, then we need to think about a compound in that second split in, in March, something like an 18612 or some kind of a decent uh, compound with uh, a high proportion of, of B and K. Then we can compact it in, in the third round with a protected urea. And then for the remainder of the season there, I've put in um, uh, some compound fertilizer that can be with the slurry tanker either in that second period of the year, that, that early summer, this is because a lot of our soil fertility is low on a, a large proportion of soils in Ireland. And those soils, if they're at index one or two for P and K, will need a helping hand there mid-season to drive peak growth. So in a round or two rounds, some uh, phosphorus and, and potash need to be applied um, 
an 18612 type product is ideal for grazing. Um, obviously, if it's a silage type situation, slurry or an 0730 type product might be more conducive. And then we can see out the rest of the year with protected urea plus sulfur or straight protected urea 46% N. The other things to consider here then is in terms of those low index soils, P buildup and K buildup. We must front load the P buildup to drive uh, growth and to give the soil a helping hand. So that needs to be uh, put on from March onwards. Uh, sulfur there needs to be considered, especially on these light soils, um, and especially where there's high offtakes in either bales or silage being taken off um, these light soils. And then we can consider uh, backloading uh, the buildup uh, potash from July onwards in the season. Uh, very briefly, if we think about poorly drained soils, um, they have a different growth habit, so very slow growth in January and February, and they really only pick up from uh, around St. Patrick's Day onwards in terms of peak growth. They have a much higher peak uh, there in, in, in May at this time of the year as they dry out and warm up. And then um, obviously a very short season, uh, growing season overall, because uh, the ground becomes wet in the, in the back end and uh, trafficability becomes uh, problematic. So again, we can split this into four periods. Period one uh, is, is the, the spring period and you can see there, there is much low, lower demand uh, for nutrients because grass growth is lower and hence we need to tailor our nutrient advice uh, differently for these soils. Lime, um, uh, needs to be considered uh, very much so on these soils as well. This is usually the second half of the year because of trafficability issues on these soils. But again, to be opportunistic uh, to get the lime out on these soils, if we wait too late, so these soils can become wet and uh, traveling with a lime spreader can be a problem. So again, we're starting later on these soils, maybe with a compound straight off uh, because they're cold and, and, and wet. Uh, that can be timed there in mid-March, early April, and then we can, we, we can begin our protected urea program. Um, again, we need to consider where indexes are low, uh, giving the soil a helping hand at peak growth with some kind of a compound or um, a distillery tanker, and then we can uh, complete the year with uh, protected urea type product. So there's plenty of opportunities here um, in both soil types to introduce protected urea. However, one thing that, that uh, one point that I must make is we, we dared not um, forget soil fertility in the mix. Um, we need to uh, consider where compounds are needed and where considering those compounds or the slurry tanker, um, we need to be putting out strong compounds like your 18612 or 10, 10, 20s for, for, for grazing and uh, for silage, something like straight uh, P or K, or uh, traditionally what would have been used was 0730 or 01020. Okay, finally then, in terms of what does that look like in terms of an overall uh, program? Um, I've selected a, a dairy program here at a high stocking rate, a derogation stocking rate, but with the challenge of index one for, for both P and K, so low fertility. And if we look there in the red at the start, the advice uh, for uh, this stopping rate and 
for the soil fertility levels, we can see there uh, up to 250 kilos per hectare of N, 39 kilograms per hectare of phosphorus, 95 kilograms per hectare of potassium, and uh, 15 kilograms per hectare of sulfur. So how are we going to meet those demands uh, over the season? So if we start off there on this uh, dry soil type with uh, protected urea to start off with, then in mid-March, as I've said, if, we're, if there's no slurry going back onto this, these, these paddocks or this, this land, we need to think about a strong compound of 18612. And that's roughly two, two and a half bags of 18612 over that March, early April period, which can be split in two splits. Then we can come back in, and in with a round or, or two rounds of protected urea uh, or protected urea plus sulfur. Uh, at peak growth there, we need to give this soil, because it's index one, um, a helping hand with 18612 again um, in one or two rounds. And then we can complete the season uh, from July into September there with protected urea. And you can see there the final tot. 248 kilograms of N, 38 kilograms of P, 72 of K, and 18 of sulfur at a cost of 343 euro per hectare. So again, this is an idealized program, but you can see there, there is plenty of opportunities to introduce protected urea while not forgetting baseline soil fertility. For further information, please uh, look at the Chagas website. I've given the hyperlink there for the, uh, the page where you can get more insights into uh, programs and also more information on protected urea. And lastly then, I must uh, caution that, that it's important to complete uh, a farm fertilizer plan to determine the max NMP allowances to keep you right by nitrates legislation and to maximize your return on investment. So very finally then, in summary, why protected urea, why now? As Patrick has said, we need to show progress towards reducing emissions. Protected urea has the largest, is the largest single tool that we have in our arsenal or in our tool bag, and um, uh, we need to avail of it. But how do we do that? Uh, we need to use and try to introduce protected urea into fertilizer programs. This will help us produce top yields. There's no compromise uh, compared with can. Cost, we can, uh, it's cost beneficial. Greenhouse gases, there's benefits there. Ammonia, it holds on to the nitrogen, so we're not losing it to the atmosphere, which will help you grow more grass. And lastly, we will get credit uh, um, as an agricultural nation for uh, uh, using this technology. So thank you very much. Okay, David, thank you very much for that. And to Patrick for an excellent overview of uh, the, 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 the protected urea story so far. Um, the, uh, Patrick, you mentioned at the start of your presentation, just a general question, I mean, the, 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 the EU strategy, the, the farm to fork strategy talks about a 20% reduction. And I mean, a lot of the effort we, we put into uh, reducing fertilizer is around fertilizer efficiency and, you know, liming and getting the right soil conditions. I mean, beyond that, you know, what sort of tactics can we look at, at utilizing to to further reduce that reliance or that uh, on, on fertilizer, I presume it, 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 it refers to chemical fertilizer inputs in the farm to fork uh, strategy. Thanks for that question, uh, Mark. Um, well, it, it's no doubt uh, that that strategy there uh, does set a challenge for us. Um, and we know that we need to get the nitrogen into the system 
um, in some way uh, to continue to grow um, to have the output. Uh, so I showed in, on my second slide a number of different ways that we can do that. Um, and one of those ways um, is by incorporation of legumes to bring nitrogen into the system that way. Um, so you know there has been an emphasis um, in Chagask on incorporating uh, clover into swards and there's no doubt that that's going to be um, a part of the picture as we go forward. Um, but to meet these challenges, um, there isn't, let's say, a, a magic bullet that's going to uh, solve it all in one go. Protected urea isn't that, but uh, neither is clover likely to be that. It's putting all these tools together as a package in an efficient way, in a program that's carefully put together, um, as David has taken you through, uh, just as some of the ways that that can be to, done and each farmer uh, making small improvements and you know that cut there in terms of um, fertilizer that the EU are talking about it's really driven by that goal to make a 50% reduction in losses so our ability to demonstrate reduction in losses and every farmer on their own farms can make a difference in this respect you know think of water quality is there anything you can do on your farm just to make sure there isn't any nutrient uh, getting away there? Because um, you know that's being measured and that's going to come into the final reckoning. So let's not damage your own businesses by um, you know maybe just small things that could be done at a farm level um, to keep uh, losses to a minimum. Thanks. Thanks very much for that, Patrick. Um, so Pat, um, we have plenty of questions coming through there. Do you want to uh, get the ball rolling there? Yeah, absolutely. A huge number of questions and I think uh, people will be interested in so I'll ask people to keep maybe answers reasonably brief. Uh, some, I suppose some quick ones. Uh, is the inhibitor more effective included in the melt than on the surface of the granule or is there any evidence there? Um, well, I, I'll go ahead and take that one, Pat. Um, yeah, so, so what we do know from, um, from, from studies is that NBPT um, or the urease inhibitors are very effective at suppressing um, that loss if they're there at the correct levels. So the most important factor really is that the, that the spec, that regulatory spec is met um, on the inhibitor. Uh, so any way that that can be done um, and quality ensured, I think is going to be um, a good outcome. Um, and you know, it's, it's possible that that can be achieved um, in, in both ways. There's a couple of follow-on questions about the inhibitor, uh, I suppose about any harmful residues or uh, any issues with the, the co-solvents. Um, can you be a bit more specific, Pat? I suppose, that, well, the, the question is, are, um, I was asking, are there any uh, uh, issues with residues? Um, yes, yeah, so there, there's no evidence of that at present. Okay. Um, the uh, um, uh, sorry. Uh, yes, uh, this question there: Should we not be encouraging the more widespread use of clover swards and reduce the, the overall need for chemical nitrogen, regardless of whether it's can urea or protected urea? Yeah. Well, I suppose just to follow up on my earlier comment in that regard, and um, there, there is. Um, an, emphasis on, an emphasis on promoting uh, clover um, as a component of swards. Um, and as I mentioned, it's going to have to be, uh, we're, we're going to need to have 
all tools on the table. So if we can combine um, swords that lead, need less nitrogen due to clover or through other methods with fertilizers that have a lower emission profile, um, that's all going to be to the good. So it's, it's a good point. Um, yes, this is part of the picture, certainly. But fertilizer remains part of the picture. Yeah, and a, a question there, is there any point in using protected urea in a damp spring? Uh, I presume they're meaning they're over uh, regular urea. Um, yeah, so the, the question in relation to the damp spring, um, the, the damp weather is going to suppress the ammonia loss, there's no doubt. So um, in the current uh, framework that we find ourselves um, being challenged to reduce um, both ammonia and greenhouse gas emissions, the point um, really is to uh, suppress that national um, ammonia loss uh, figure. So, so basically, just to, just to follow up on that point, mm -hmm. is um, in the inventory, it's not a technical issue on, on the farm, so the, the damp spring has helped you uh, maintain more of the nitrogen on the ground. However, in the inventory, if we increase or, or maintain even the current level of urea use, it means that we will have higher emissions of ammonia based on that calculation. So we need to swap over as much of that uh, urea nitrogen to a protected urea nitrogen to help with our ammonia emissions. So again, this is not a, we have to, to, to be thinking a slightly bigger picture here in terms of how that looks in terms of our national emissions um, targets. Okay, and there's a, a few questions in, in relation to potential impact in relation to any water quality implications of a switch from both urea and can to protected urea. So uh, just uh, very, very briefly, and let Patrick in because he has more work uh, ongoing. Um, we did look at um, these three nitrogen farms in a tillage, in a, 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 I suppose, a free draining tillage uh, situation where you would expect there to be a higher risk of, of leaching loss because after a, a tillage crop or a cereal crop is harvested, you have no, um, you have a period there where you have no actively growing roots or, or plants till you get a, a potentially get a, a cover crop in. And what we found there was that um, urea and protected urea seem to have a lower risk. So there seemed to be better uptake of the nitrogen. It's not in a nitrate form readily uh, to start off with. Yes, it's converted over the year, but uh, there was lower uh, leaching risk potential there from those products. So protected urea from that point of view would indicate uh, to be a, a safer product. Obviously, most farmers are using or have been using for the last couple of decades urea in the spring uh, for those very reasons. It's not in a nitrate form that's easy, easily leached. But Patrick, maybe you have more, more work. Yeah, thanks, David. Um, you know, as, as David has set out there, um, we know that, that nitrate is more vulnerable to leaching uh, when those uh, leaching conditions uh, prevail. Uh, so if we compare protected urea to a nitrate containing product uh, such as, as can, um, straight away you've got less nitrate uh, there uh, vulnerable uh, to, to, being, to being leached or, or, or lost. Um, and protected urea is a urea-based product, so 
um, it should be uh, comparable to uh, the urea that you would be using early in the season. And um, you know that work there in the tillage side uh, was quite insightful. Um, but it should also make the point that um, in terms of the greenhouse gas uh, reduction saving, um, we are predominant. This this um, protected urea is being aimed at the uh, grassland sector. That's where the benefit of the switchover um, occurs. Um, nevertheless, you, this work that we conducted on the tillage side, um, it's still an option for for tillage farmers if if they if they choose to to, to do so. Um, and um, and and it's that work that David mentioned that gave us that insight into the differential between tillage and uh, grassland work. It's okay. There's a number of, of questions there around, I suppose, two issues in relation to pH and lime. One is uh, about the safety of, of uh, uh, spreading in protected urea when lime has been spread or when lime is about to be spread. And the second uh, relates to the impact of protected urea. And there's a related question about the impact of sulfur on uh, soil pH. Um, okay. So, that, so that's two questions. Uh, I might just yeah. take the first one uh, first um, and then come back to the second one. So, so the first one is in relation to spreading of protected urea after lime. Um, yeah, so look, I think that this is an area where we do need to do a bit more work. Um, it's something that's relatively new, but I will make this comment. So um, NBPT, the urease inhibitor, um, is more stable at high pH. Um, so it degrades less ra rapidly. So it ought to work better uh, um, at higher pH uh, settings. I have done one small uh, preliminary lab study um, which indicated that it was, uh, it was working um, where it was applied um, to lime. In, in other words, that it was suppressing uh, the ammonia emission even when used with lime. Um, but it's early days and I wouldn't be comfortable giving that as a blanket across the board. A recommendation for all situations. I know there is pressure there to, to answer that question, but I would put it uh, to you that if we look at the 2019 stats, uh, protected urea makes up only a small portion of the nitrogen that's used. There's also a need for compound. Um, so uh, for the meantime, um, while we, do, we don't want anything to stop you uh, spreading lime, that's your first step in soil fertility, um, but you um, while, while there's not, um, let's say, the level of um, work done that needs to be done to answer that question as of yet, um, definitively, um, th there's plenty of other options for you there, um, including using um, the compound MS set out by David. Okay, uh, 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 potentially a, a six mark question for uh, both of you, I suppose. Uh, how realistic is it for fertilizer N to be reduced uh, to meet the, the, I suppose, the target set out and uh, to effectively do it without having too much impact on, on uh, uh, crop output. So if, 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 we, if we look uh, simply at, at nitrogen use efficiency first, Pat, I, I won't answer the question uh, straight on until I explain a little bit of the background. So if we think about nitrogen use efficiency on farms today, there is huge headroom for um, increasing the efficiency. So be it with slurry, be it with clover, be it through soil fertility and liming. So the first question we must ask ourselves is, are we getting the maximum efficiency out of every kilo of nitrogen that we're putting out in our current fertilizer program? 
and how much could we potentially increase that by getting the basics right. So there's the first uh, component of uh, nitrogen that we can get back, save in the system and potentially take off the, the, the top line nitrogen. Um, the current recommendations uh, that we have either in the Chagas Green book, which have been co-opted um, under nitrates and a, a few other legislations, are in terms of production, but also keeping an eye on the environment. So they're in that sweet spot where we, get, we can maximize production, but also minimize the losses to the environment and the losses from your business. However, under the current regime, where I look at the national soil fertility stats, uh, lime and pH being number one, and then P's and K's, we have a, a, a huge mountain to climb there in terms of rightifying that, getting optimized uh, soil fertility. And if we're putting fertilizers into an optimized soil fertility, who knows, we probably could get 10, maybe even 15% more nitrogen use efficiency. Also, as I discussed in the last webinar, in terms of maximizing the uh, return on um, slurry nutrients or manure nutrients by using them at the right place, at the right time, with the right method, um, there's a huge saving to be made there and a huge cost benefit for your business. So that would be a, a general comment, I would say, to, to, to that. Um, look, at it's, it's going to be challenging to reduce headline nitrogen rates. Um, the, the, uh, you know, getting clover into swards uh, is not an overnight thing. It takes time. Um, it takes a number of years. You have to have soil fertility right. Clover is not tolerant to uh, low pH, so acidic soil conditions. If anything, it needs nearly neutral soil fertility. Uh, fertility and it also has a big demand for P, for phosphorus. So there's no point in, 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 in trying to uh, introduce clover uh, into a sward where your uh, hasn't been limed, you're very acidic and your um, soil fertility is on the floor. So the first thing, we need to get the basics right and then build on that. And as Patrick says, uh, this is one tool but we need all the tools working um, in, in uh, simultaneously. David, just, just to follow on from that and from your presentation, I mean, you're advocating, a, I suppose, a more intelligent use of fertilizers. And, and yeah. last week we talked about slurry. Um, and of course, from, from this, throughout this whole series, we, we, we see, a, I suppose, a more uh, intelligent and sophisticated approach to resource use at a farm level. Obviously, there's, you know, this is going to bring complexity with it and there needs to be a very significant knowledge transfer effort here. Um, could you just talk to us about, or maybe Pat, you could come in as well, just on the nutrient management planning tool that Chagas has available to farmers. I mean, are, are, are all farmers, I know at the moment all farmers are supposed to have a, a nutrient management of, of a plan of sorts, but really from, from what today's presentation, we're looking at something a little bit more involved here that uh, takes a broader view beyond just um, you know the, the, the chemical requirements you know we, we have to look at the soil obviously and uh, and then maybe other uh, ways of, of uh, boosting uh, soil nutrition. Very important point uh, Mark. Um, I think we need to move beyond 
treating the nutrient management plan as a legislative tool or a tool for, for uh, reporting at the farm scale. So this uh, plan needs to be both spatially and temporally explicit. So it needs to be, it needs to consider different parts of the farm. Every farm has different soil types. And it also needs to consider what we're doing at different times of the year. As I've shown in the presentation, we can split the year up into four discrete periods and to get those right. So um, there's an opportunity here with the NMP online planning tool, Pat will talk about it, where that is becoming now more advanced and will give you the split by split fertilizer advice for your farm. However, that's a two-way conversation with the advisor and the farmer. The farmer needs to be fully immersed and involved in developing that plan in terms of what his targets, his or her targets are for the different parcels on the farm. The silage blocks versus the grazing blocks, if there's tillage on the farm, where the young stock are reared, etc. Because these all have different turnout times, different grass uh, feed demands, um, and uh, the fertilizer plan can be really tailored towards that and where it makes practical sense, it's cost effective, and it's relatively easy for the farmer from a practical standpoint to perform the operations. That is not bamboozled, he or she is not bamboozled with this big text heavy plan where you know, uh, they're trying to decipher at the start of the year, what am I going to do when? At what rate am I going to? What product should I, I purchase? So the first thing is to have the plan um, to be able to, to, to garner a, a, a long-term view or a year-long view on what product mix I need to have in my arsenal, what I need to uh, consult with my merchant in terms of purchasing over the year and to be able to then cost that out over the year in terms of cash flow, etc. Also, there are key issues like liming. Um, when is the most opportune time for getting the basics right in terms of uh, application of lime? Do I need a, 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 to, to contact my lime agent and have a, a load of lime in the yard ready for early in the spring and another one for, for example, after silage time when I have a bare stubble? And then um, thirdly then is the, the manure and, and slurry on the farm. That can't be just put out uh, because the tank is full, it needs to be targeted at the area where you get the maximum benefit. As we've said last week, the maximum economic return um, in uh, slurry, cattle slurry, or organic manure is its P and K content. So it stands to reason it should go back to fields or paddocks where they have a big requirement for P and K. And then we can also maximize the nitrogen response out of that. Pat, maybe you want to comment on NMP online. Yeah, I think you've, you've dealt with it fairly comprehensively. I suppose we talked to the, uh, both farmers and, and uh, uh, advisors who are using NMP and we got a challenge. And the challenge was to uh, have a, a, a more relevant uh, nutrient management plan that, that not just gave you a, a list of the fertilizers for the year, but that split them down into uh, what, what David was talking about in terms of split by split uh, and what the uh, farmer uh, is required to do or what he needs to put out at, at various times. The second element that the advisors wanted is they wanted it to take no more time to actually do the plan. So even though a lot more detail in it, no more time to, to prepare it because they just wouldn't have that time to give. And the third element 
would be to make sure that those plans were, were in a format that could uh, be used, more readily usable by and better communicated to the farmers. And I suppose across this year, we have, I suppose, focused on, on the first two of those uh, elements. We now have the splits built into the, the system. It is built in in a way that shouldn't take any more time uh, because of a number of uh, features brought into the plan. And I think over the next year, then our real focus will be on really getting those, uh, that information and those plans better uh, communicated to farmers through a variety of, of means in terms of mapping and in terms of hopefully apps. And uh, just again, putting the, the information in the farmers' hands when they need it and where they need it. Oh, so, sorry, I turned from questioner to answer there for a minute. Um, I suppose a couple of other questions then, David, if you um, if you can hear me. Uh, there's a, a number of questions in relation to uh, the incorporation of protected urea into compounds and the uh, prospects there or the difficulties there. Okay, so as Patrick has alluded to, we have a list of uh, the protected urea products currently on the market on the Chagas website at that link um, that I've showed you and uh, Patrick has it in the presentation. Those are mainly uh, where, where it's in a more compound or, or um, not in a straight end product. It's usually mixed either with sulfur or with potash. Um, you won't find uh, any of the protected ureas currently on the market mixed with phosphorus because uh, currently, while in storage in a bag, uh, the phosphorus, uh, which is acidic in nature, and the protected urea, the protection on the urea, are antagonistic. So it will cause the, 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 the protection to break down. So um, as I, as I uh, presented there, what we're not saying is that we need to move all out to protected urea and forget about soil fertility. That's the key point here. So there's plenty of, of opportunities if you think, if, if any of the, the farmers on the, on the call uh, or farmers in general think um, about their, their fertilizer program over the year, there's times when you put in your compounds and then there's other times where you go for either straight N or straight N plus sulfur. So there's plenty of opportunities here. We need to keep the compounds and probably high-end compounds or high-PK high, high uh, PK compounds. So compounds that are going to do the job need to be put in at the right time, at the right rate, uh, in the right place. Uh, and then around that, then there's scope for using protected urea to increase our nitrogen use efficiency overall and also help us meet our national um, uh, environmental targets. So... Um, I suppose that's, that's it in a nutshell, Pat. Um, yeah. Just one, and, and I suppose for Patrick, a, a key question. Uh, what field trials are still ongoing in relation to uh, confirming that the widespread use of protected urea doesn't represent the food safety concerns either through the uptake of the urease inhibitor or any uh, co-formulants? Yes. Um, so I have a number of trials going on, um, including a long-term trial um, where um, the different fertilizers, including protected urea, have been applied uh, to the same plots continually um, over uh, the last six years uh, alongside uh, other nitrogen forms. So uh, that continues to run, and I suppose it's part of Chagas' commitment 
to to look at um, different options over the longer term, not just over the shorter term, which is a typical um, type of uh, funding cycles uh, projects. Um, in addition, the Department of Agriculture have funded a project um, where um, the phase of NBPT um, uh, is going to be explored um, in much greater detail, um, including uh, modeling and risk, including a, a risk assessment modeling uh, exercise. And that work is ongoing. A couple of quick questions. There's uh, always a few questions about where we can access the, the presentations and, and we'll be sending out information in the, the, the presentation will be up later on and, and we'll be sending out information as to where you can get the presentations. There's one here also, it's where I can get uh, the Chagas Green Book from. And uh, if you search for, if you Google Chagas Green Book, it'll take you straight there. So that's, that's the answer to that. Mark, the, the, the Chagas soil, uh, I've given a, a reference there for the, the <laughs> information or the protected urea information on the Chagas soil and soil fertility uh, webpage. So if you go into the public website for Chagas, uh, go into uh, the environment section, you'll find all this information plus a lot more. The Chagas Green Book is there, recommendations are there, information about research etc. It's quite a, a, a robust uh, repository of the information that um, we've been um, developing at Johnstown Castle over the last, I suppose, two decades. That's right, David. And to add to that um, comment, uh, there's also a tab there for protected urea. And over the last couple of years, um, we have uh, produced a number of documents which answer uh, frequently asked questions. So, um, it, Probably we're not going to get to every question, but if you go onto that website, you can download a number of documents where specific questions were asked and answered. Okay, thank you. Um, we're going to have to, I know there's, there's lots more questions coming through there, Pat, but unfortunately, uh, time has caught up with us. Um, so um, that, that resource is an excellent resource, the Chagas uh, Soil Fertility site, or just Google Chagas Soil Fertility, it'll bring you straight to it. Um, and that's updated regularly as well, I understand, with uh, new products available as well. So uh, an excellent resource. And what we'll try and do is include uh, a link to that website as well within the, uh, the follow-up email that you'll receive after today's. So I just want to thank uh, everyone for dialing in today to our webinar. I want to thank our production team, uh, Andy Boland, Yvonne Maher, and uh, Pat Murphy. And uh, I want to thank our two speakers, David Wall and Patrick Forrestal, uh, for joining us. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost Series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review, and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson, and thanks for listening.